I was going to uh, give you fake Michael Barbaro voice to like get you in the mood for podcast talking, but I couldn't it's, pull it off. It's Tuesday. <laughs> hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the never-ending election. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute. Happy weekend after Election Day, even though this election season is not quite over yet. A lot of you are maybe still refreshing those electoral college maps online, still glued to cable news, still crunching numbers at home. So this episode, we have to dig deep on politics and this week's still changing election results. We're going to talk with someone who knows a lot about politics, Ested Herndon. He is a political reporter at The New York Times, and he has covered this entire campaign and election season with the focus on Democrats and the left. Now, we should point out, we talked to Ested Friday morning. And at that point, the presidential race was not called, but it was trending in Joe Biden's favor. All right, with that caveat, here's Ested breaking down the election and what it means for the left that there was no big blowout for them, at least not yet. All right. Well, with that, let's get into uh, our wide-ranging conversation about Tottenham. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, I'm not really an expert at. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that is besides maybe soccer. Yes. Yeah. You tweet about it a lot. Yeah, yep, you're on the right path. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyways, we're not talking about that. We're going to talk about the election. I said you cover the left for the New York Times. Uh, you cover Biden, the Democrats, all of that. You know, you were writing articles before this election about how some Democrats were quietly whispering in October that it might be a blowout. It might be a landslide. We are starting to see some of the reasons why it wasn't, you know, Biden's performance with Latinos, with black men, his, you know, white people also. A lot of them didn't vote for him. But how big of a deal is this that it was not a blowout? And, and, and like, gosh, does it really complicate things for Biden should he win? He's going to have to still deal with Mitch McConnell leading the Senate, for instance. Right. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it certainly complicates things. I mean, and the story that's uh, referencing was not only just the desire that it might be looking at polling and the like, but there was folks talking about how they thought it needed to be so that if because of progressive agenda items or or kind of repudiating Trumpism morally, uh, that they thought it needed to be a blowout to kind of open up the space for a larger, more ambitious agenda when it came to the next four years. That's not going to happen, even if Democrats pull off a kind of miracle in the two Texas Senate or Georgia Senate runoffs. Uh, you're going to be dealing with a sharply divided Congress, a receded majority in the House, which kind of no one expected. I mean, we think that that's going to take the biggest items off the agenda. If McConnell keeps that Senate majority, you can kiss that all goodbye. But I think that the biggest dreams of what people thought was possible under the Biden presidency required a blowout on Tuesday, and that didn't happen. Yeah. And we should caveat, I just heard you say the words Biden and presidency together. We are taping Friday morning. It's not official yet, but it looks as if Biden's uh, moving closer to victory. Uh, what does it say that Democrats had this kind of results 
in spite of spending so much money and raising so much money, I'm thinking about Jamie Harrison losing his race for Senate to Lindsey Graham, even after he had, what, like $57 million raised in the span of a few weeks or a month or something. You know, on the one hand, Biden's gotten the most votes of any candidate for president ever. But on the other hand, Democrats raised so much money and it didn't give them all that they wanted. Yeah, I think we're seeing kind of this year the role in the, the, of money being questioned, period. I mean, I think that one of the things Biden won in the primary was basically having no finances through most of the primary campaign. That It was such a nationalized race that things like name recognition and kind of familiarity with voters mattered a lot more than your ability you know, to define yourself if you were Joe Biden's level of famous. We saw this kind of now. I mean, I think on one hand, some of the surprise and disappointment for Democrats is that the races that they were kind of investing a lot of money in were always long shots. Uh, you know, Harrison was never a favorite. People like MJ Agar in, in Texas, folks like uh, Amy McGrath in Kentucky, but where they so super um, are disappointed are the targets in which they thought they at minimum could start with, Susan Collins in Maine, uh, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. And it looks like those folks are both going back to the Senate. Those are where the real disappointment is. And, you know, I think that like some Democrats uh, may have a kind of gut check going forward to not say that money and enthusiasm automatically equals a victory. Yeah. You know, hearing you talk about how money isn't everything, I am looking at three specific states that Democrats were hopeful for. And only one seems to be a real possibility for them to win uh, as of this Friday morning taping. I'm talking about Texas, Georgia, and South Carolina, where Harrison is. Uh, is the reason Georgia is still in play for Biden because of Stacey Abrams, because of that on-the-ground organizing, because of that like door-to-door um, focus on individual voters and not just flooding the airwaves with TV ads? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't either or, right? TV ads can still be coupled with the level of investment. I mean, the thing is, the pandemic also changed the way Democrats were doing grassroots organizing. And that's kind of the nature of the game is that uh, some stuff is going to be specific to this year. Uh, But what we do know is that, you know, the results weren't there for them. And particularly in those reach states, Ohio, Texas, uh, there was a sense that the Republican kind of wall there was crumbling. And what we have as a reality is that Donald Trump is very good at juicing white rural turnout. And in places that have a lot of that, it made the difference between making those states close or not. You know, speaking about white turnout, there are other questions about turnout of other various communities, uh, many considered essential to Democratic candidates. You know, we know now that black turnout, especially in some key states, was up two or threefold in some instances by some measures. Latino turnout, uh, it's a little murkier. We don't know yet. Um, White voters, you just mentioned them. Like, what turnout story from these results so far has surprised you the most? Well, I think, again, uh, not to give Trump too much credit for a likely loss, but the way that when we talk about polls and state polling missing, there seems to be real evidence that he can find new pockets of voters that pollsters cannot. I think that uh, the other side, you know, Joe Biden didn't get the most votes of anybody in history. Democrats were jazzed, but we knew that. Uh, I think for Democrats, there's a little bit of signs to say, you know, the assumption that more people voting means that Democrats win. 
like is not mm. a, not a perfect one. Uh, there are, Republicans can find new voters too. Yeah, and and you know there are other things that I think the Democratic Party has just thought to be true, and they're not perfectly true. You know, I think the Democratic Party has long banked on just having a demographic advantage against Republicans as the nation and the electorate becomes less white. But as you wrote before, there is no such thing as inevitable demographic destiny. And we're seeing right now in the shakeout of the Latino vote that that is the case. Just because people are X race or Y race doesn't mean they're all going to vote for the same person. Are Democrats absorbing the lessons for Latino voter outreach in the aftermath of this election? I mean, I think that there are being told to. I mean, the problem, honestly, it's it, this election is going to be so hard for the powers to be to sort out because there are real places that you can point to around Latino vote, places like uh, Miami-Dade County, around border counties in Texas, even around some others we saw in North places. And then you have some some good signs uh, for Democrats among Latino voters in states like Wisconsin, things like Arizona and Colorado and other places. I think that that is one of those reasons why it's so important to remember that people have overlapping identities and that these groups are not monolithic, right? While the story of Texas can be one of uh, Latino voters and border communities not supporting Biden, it could also be Trump's rural appeal and that he juices uh, people outside of cities across race at a higher degree than other people, right? So people have overlapping things that define them as voters. And I think there's a tendency for us to only thinking things specifically through a racial lens, which is a important one, but is not, um, well, it's not necessarily the only one. All right, coming up, more with New York Times political reporter Ested Herndon. We'll talk about the shadow of Trumpism. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, a sustainable fashion brand committed to leaving the planet in a better place than they found it. Their new apparel line includes the Trino XOT, Wool Jumper, Wool Cardi, and Trino Puffer, all made of premium natural materials with the carbon footprint listed on each product. Evolved from nature, these pieces look, feel, and wear better, so you can wear your values on your sleeve without compromise. Get a head start on the holidays and head to allbirds.com today for the perfect gift to give and receive. This message comes from NPR sponsor Spotify, presenting Dare to Lead, a new podcast from Brene Brown that builds on the research from her number one best-selling book. Every Monday, hear conversations with change catalysts and culture shifters, people who are innovating to create a better world within their workplaces, homes, and communities. Drawing on years of research, Brene unpacks what it means to show up and step up with courage and vulnerability. Dare to Lead is available only on Spotify. Download the Spotify app for free to listen. On the next episode of Louder Than a Riot, Bobby Shmurda's transition from the streets to superstardom and how viral fame led to infamy. I don't ask people from the hood if they got criminal activity going on. I know in hip-hop, the better, the better. Listen now to Louder Than a Riot from NPR Music. Um, so I'm assuming because you are a political reporter for the New York Times that you uh, just call up the candidates every day and chit chat about whatever. What is Joe Biden telling you <laughs> about what his first hundred days might be? If Joe Biden were to call me up all day, like I would, I wouldn't be sitting here. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> you know, I think we he, we've seen some outlines of this. I mean, the problem is the realities of the Senate are such where it's going to define that next conversation. Biden has talked about, you know, and Democrats have talked about a coronavirus relief 
kind of package that is a necessity. But the kind of biggest agenda, the kind of scope of his climate plan that we see that he has run on, uh, I don't think that that stuff is going to be possible in our current congressional realities. What we do know is uh, coronavirus and economic relief from the virus will be the first things. Okay. So maybe no Green New Deal, maybe no expanding the Supreme Court right away. Some of those bigger pie-in-the-sky liberal asks might not happen because they won't have the numbers. Yeah. I mean, the Senate would have to become different people, which, I mean, (laughs) maybe, but... Yeah, probably not. You know, I was talking to McKay Coppins of The Atlantic earlier this week on Wednesday, uh, day after Election Day, about what these election results mean for the right and for the conservative movement. And the point that he made that stuck with me the most was that no matter what happens, the shadow of Trumpism and Trumpism itself lives on in the GOP. This is a party fundamentally transformed by this man. And whether he loses or not, Trumpism lives on. And you might very well see candidates modeling themselves after Trump, even if he loses this election. Like, you just might see it going forward. So I guess my question for you, as someone who covers the left, how much of the shadow of Trump will linger over Democrats, over Biden, even if Biden takes this thing? I think it matters. I mean, what we knew from Biden was that um, it wasn't just uh, a promise to get Trump out. It was a promise to restore America. If Trumpism lives on, Biden's task of doing that is harder and harder. And I think that that's the evidence that we're seeing is that the, the view of Joe Biden was always, we will deliver a decisive enough victory for Republicans and those who supported Trump will have to rethink their commitment to this ideology. Uh, that victory, I don't know, is big enough uh, for that to happen. And I think it is a, it is a rea- reality check for the kind of vision of politics that Biden has, even as he wins and is affirmed to come to the White House. And so I think that the impact of Trumpism living on is a, is a different Republican party, a Democratic party that may have to wrestle with the, kind of, uh, uh, with the kind of nature of a country it did not want to deal with four years ago. And I frankly think it just kind of um, solidifies the political divides that we have. Um, they're not going anywhere. And uh, those who thought that they were only uh, there because Donald Trump was in the White House, um, uh, I think Tuesday was the first uh, kind of puncture in that myth. Yeah, I think a lot of folks on the left were hoping that, you know, if Trump lost on Tuesday, that like the light switch would flip and it would all be like back to there before times. That's not how it's going to work, no matter what happens with this election. I also think that like the way that Trumpism will continue to live on in all of our politics is the ways in which candidates campaign. I think the loud, in-your-face, constantly saying something, tweeting something, picking fights, being engaged in back and forth, that model of campaigning is ascendant. And I think Trump's part of that. And I think you're going to see just louder, more combative political campaigning, period, going forward. Am I right? 
Yeah, yeah. I think that um, a lesson people have taken from Trump, particularly Republicans, is that kind of authenticity rules and no matter if it offends, you know, and I think that we're going to have people who are going to try to uh, live in that mold. And I think you have a Republican Party in the base that expects that mold to a degree. And that's why you're seeing politicians play into it. You know, one of the questions for Democrats, the entirety of this campaign is which flank of the party will win, the moderate wing or the more progressive wing? Biden becoming the nominee kind of answered that question. But in the aftermath of Tuesday, is that question further answered? Whose party is it, progressives or moderates right now, at least? Um, I mean, I think that it's moderate always until proven otherwise, but I kind of think it's a distinction that is not the key. Um, progressives are trying to win a long-term battle that both moves the moderates closer towards them, but also creates a long-term vision of power and gaining it. And I think that that is... Like you can look at things like the result that Georgia going blue and say that is a win for that vision of growing power. Um, you can say uh, Biden's work in the Midwest is a win for his vision of like persuading some uh, in the middle and center. And I think that there is evidence for both those groups to feel good about. It's, it's hard to say who's winning and losing right now um, because you know, this is going to be something that defines it uh, for, for, for decades. Thanks again to Ested Herndon. And listeners, if you want more from this show on politics, there is an episode of It's Been a Minute in podcast feeds right now, all about the state of the right in the aftermath of this election, featuring McKay Coppins of The Atlantic. But coming up, more with Ested. He joined me for my favorite game, Who Said That? After months of campaigning, we are finally on the cusp of knowing what happens next in the White House and in the halls of Congress. The NPR Politics Podcast will be there with you every day with the latest results and will tell you what you need to know in these uncertain times. What are you eating these days on the campaign trail or no longer campaign trail? I mean, I remember by the end of 2016, I was just surviving on like kettle cooked chips and like bad cold Starbucks? I, um, you know, I'm in Milwaukee, which is where I went to college. So I'm eating great because I know like my spots. Um, I have like places I want to go. And so, um, you know, I actually think a great part of the campaign trail is the food. And I think it's like been the one, it's been like a few joys of all of the travel and the, and the kind of craziness of it all. And I like, you know, I gained some friends on the trail and I like uh, have like had a great dining tour of America. Well. Wow. Estad Herndon did the campaign better than any of y'all. You heard it here first. <laughs> no, just just the food part. You know, everything else is a disaster. <laughs> All right, man. Estad uh, Herndon, New York Times reporter covering politics and the left. Um, I want you to play my favorite game with me now. It is called Who Said That? Ooh, Who, said that? Who said that? I share three Who quotes from the week. You got to guess who said it. There are no vote counters here. Uh, You're going to win no matter what because you're the only one playing. And you're going to win the popular vote and the electoral college for this one, okay? Is it Nevada vote counters counting or is it Florida vote counters? (laughs) Let's see. Let's see. The vote counters will be from, I don't know. Who do you want it to be? (laughs) Which ones do you trust more? Florida so you'll be faster. 
No matter the old <laughs> here until two more days. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Florida's counting the points for this game. All right. First quote. It's a really short one. Welp. Who said that? <laughs> Who said welp? Uh, yeah. In a tweet about the race for president. Me. <laughs> Probably. No, this was from a candidate for president who uh, made it clear that he wasn't going to win and tweeted out the word, Welp. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Oh, Kanye. <laughs> yeah. It was Kanye. It was Kanye. So the tweet is now deleted, but Tuesday night, Kanye West tweeted, W-E-L-P, period, after it was clear that he was not going to be president. But he replaced that tweet later with a tweet that read, Kanye 2024. How do you feel about that, sir? I mean, I feel like the same way I felt about Kanye 2020, which is that it is noise and it is uh, kind of a meaningless, narcissistic endeavor. Yeah. I mean, I've talked about Kanye running on this show before, and it just... Uh, everything about that man, I have to enter into that conversation with like a sigh beforehand. Like the other day, a Kanye song showed up on my Spotify and I love his music. Yeah. But before I could hit play and let the song play, I had to like sigh and center myself before I even listen to him now. I, I mean, I think that makes sense. I think that, you know, as someone who, you know, grew up very Kanye, um, like, ha- you know, was rocking double pop collars in the suburban Chicago because he told us to. It has all been very sad, but it has been an emotional journey I've been on for so long that at this point, you know, I think that, like, I have already worked out my Kanye-related trauma. Yeah, I'm kind of numb to that man now. Also, uh, we need to find a picture of Estad with a double-popped uh, polo shirt collar. <laughs> you, won't, you won't. You won't. It doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got one point. Here's the next quote. The one thing we know is that together we can move forward. Who said that? A major corporation. Oh. Oh, a uh, gap. The gap. Yeah, yeah. So this week, the gap, uh, a chain that is still alive, which surprises me because I feel like the gap has died three or four times before and yet they still exist. But the gap shared an image this week of a hoodie that was half red and half blue and it was a gif of the half blue half red hoodie zipping together and it was supposed to be this symbol of like coming together across political differences in the aftermath of the election uh as soon as the gap shared that everybody hated it and they actually had to give a statement to your paper instead the new york times saying quote The intention of our social media post that featured a red and blue hoodie was to show the power of unity. But they continued, it was just too soon for this message. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Gap, for your bravery and for trying to heal a broken nation. Because if anyone can do it, the Gap can do it. (laughs) Right, right, right. I'm like, that's what I don't get about those brand tweets. I'm like, who was in the room and was like, it's time for us to speak up. Like no The one... nation's waiting for our response. Yeah, yeah. It's like, honestly, if you just piped down, I wouldn't have thought about the gap this week, and that would have been perfectly fine. Also, the gap might have been able to shift the nation's opinion on something like in 1999 or 2000, but they're not relevant anymore, right. dare I say. Sorry to any gap employees hearing this. I hope you uh, like your job. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, like the middle school version of me thought like you know as i was like exiting hollister like thought that like oh the gap was like where the adults shopped 
But uh, it turns out, no, it's not. <laughs> I also love that so far in this conversation, you have told me that you uh, would double pop your polo shirt collars and shop at Hollister. Listen, My goodness, like, details. I had like phases of like every personality growing up, you know, and so like, you know, I had a Hollister moment. I had like a Vans, like fake skater dude moment. I had like oversized jerseys with Jabot straps, like I, like a member of G Unit. You know, like I was like a real chameleon to like try to have friends and uh, was only moderately successful at that. <laughs> All right. Last quote in the game. Um, There's some holes in this house. There's some holes in this house. You're um, never going to get it. No, I so I'm trying to think. Uh, it is about Milwaukee, though. It's about Milwaukee. Is holes a reference to cheese? No. Holes is a reference to people's homes and something that Milwaukee wanted to do to help people with holes in their homes. Sorry, this is not I, helpful to I, you. I, yeah, I absolutely. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> All right, that quote, there's some holes in this house, came from Milwaukee's Weatherization Assistance Program. Such a program exists. Uh, they basically help qualifying residents get energy-saving updates to their homes, like plugging little holes in their house to keep the warm air in. Mm. So this week, County Supervisor Ryan Clancy, playing off the very popular Megan Thee Stallion, Cardi B song, WAP, uh, took a lyric from that song to promote Milwaukee's weatherization assistance program with the quote, oh, I, there's some that. holes in this house. And he apologized. Yeah, it's like, you don't have to apologize. Like, he yeah. took the image. Well, so he also shared it with, he shared that quote with an image of Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion from the WAP video. And he eventually had to take it down and apologize. And I'm just like, why are we so, to let, it's Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. We all like them. It's okay. Yeah, no, it's I, fine, right? I remember seeing this and thinking, wait, I don't get why he's apologizing. I mean, it might be like a little cringe or whatever, like, but like, it's not like, it wasn't like immoral, you know? Like, and I, I like it. I like it too. And also, I just hope, like, I love that WAP is like the song that keeps on giving. Like, it is, it's been out for what, a few months now, and we're yeah. still kind of like fighting over this song. I love it. I love these kind of fights. I love how petty they get. I love how like people are just hand-wringing over a song still. Yeah, I mean, I think that if we had a song of the summer, which none of us had a real summer. There like, was no summer. But it felt like it because just the video and all of that was like a moment and all of and such, but you know, it was really denied us our true WAP experience of like, you know, in the club, in the sweaty group of people, like with that song one, which is the true, I think, sign of the song of the summer. I don't cook, I don't clean, but let me tell you, I got this ring. Oh yeah, we all had to twerk to WAP at home in front of our bathroom mirrors alone. How sad. The whole summer. Uh, you know, is a is a compilation of sad moments. Estet, <laughs> uh, I think you won this game. Of course you won this game. You were the only one playing it. Estet Herndon, thank you for covering the left and Democrats for the last God knows how long. And I hope you get some rest soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again to New York Times national political reporter Estet Herndon. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. 
Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hey Sam, this is Meredith in the southwest of the UK. Back in April, I was supposed to get married, but because of the pandemic, I had to postpone my wedding. But today, the best part of my week and probably my whole life is that I'm finally getting married in just a few hours. Hi Sam, this is Amy. I am thrilled this week to share that I got my first choice in a new assignment with the Foreign Service, and next summer I will be heading to Kampala, Uganda. Hi Sam, this is Cece from Oakland. The best part of my week was finally getting to see my grandma's face, virtually of course. My family sent her an Amazon Alexa, and when I finally saw her face on the screen, I was brought to tears. Hi Sam, this is Uni from LA. The best thing that happened to me this week is last night my partner let me in on a secret, which was that he sent you a best thing voice note about a month ago to surprise me. Even though it wasn't chosen to be played, knowing him and knowing how embarrassed he would have been recording the voice note made me feel so thankful for how thoughtful and loving he is. Ross, you're the best and I can't wait to marry you. Hey Sam, this is Heather in Portland. Uh, best part of my week was going into my kiddo's room at night, just checking on him before I went to bed, and just watching him lie there so peacefully, just sleeping soundly, a little bit of snoring. With everything going on in the world, it just brings me such peace to see that. He's 16, and it never gets old. Have a great week. Thanks, Sam. Have a great week and weekend. Love your show. Oh, man. Thanks to all those listeners there. Really nice to hear great news with some semblance of finality in such a weird, weird week of news. Thanks to those listeners you heard. Heather, Uni, Cece, Amy, and Meredith. Listeners, you can be a part of this segment any week. Just record the sound of your voice onto your phone, sharing the best part of your week, and email that file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, the show was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Star McCowan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. Stay safe. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. <laughs>